Pray with me, Father in heaven, it is our heart's desire now to see only Christ and that we would hear only uh, from you uh, through his spirits among us. So we pray that even as we read this word, even we think about it, we would pray that you would open our minds to listen, to hear, to understand, to receive, to embrace. Father, there's so much that could cause us to desire to resist this word, so I pray that you would overcome all of that, that we might walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Hebrews and chapter 11. I want to read verses 1 and 2, and then verses 5 and 6. Hebrews in chapter 11, please. Hear the word of God. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And then verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Uh, the author of Hebrews introduced all of this way back in verse uh, 38 of chapter 11. With this one phrase where he says, But my righteous one shall live by faith. The righteous, the just, the justified shall live by faith. That, of course, uh, is the gospel. And so you ask the question, well, um, who are these righteous? And, of course, the answer is the righteous are those who live by faith. But the second question then is, well, why call them righteous? Well, righteous means that one is right or just according to a particular standard. For instance, if one would be a righteous student, it would mean that you got 100% on all your tests. According to the standard of the professor, you're righteous. Anything less than that would be various degrees of unrighteousness. And thus, one who is righteous in the sight of God, one who is right before him, is right given the standard of God. And you might say, well, then how could any be righteous before him? Because we know that he is holy. And the answer is, well, there's two ways, really, to be righteous before God. One is to obey him perfectly from birth to death. That is, to take the very law of God and to obey it, to do it. To miss it at no point, not in your deed, not by what you think, or the attitude of your heart. But to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. To joyfully obey him. If that is true of you, then righteousness is yours. If you're like me, then you'd say, alright, what's the second one? What's the other way? And it's the way of faith in Christ. That's the gospel. Because you see, faith in Christ means that we're depending upon him to be our righteousness and to bring righteousness to us. And he does that in two ways. One, by way of his life. In the context of the life of Jesus, he lives righteously as our representative. That is, that he obeys God completely for us 
on our behalf. So at every point of obedience in Christ, that's for us, so that we might be counted righteous before God, according to his righteousness, that gift that he gives to us. And then secondly, he makes us righteous by way of his death, so that he takes the penalty for our sin upon himself on the cross, that we might be forgiven our sins, as the apostle puts it, like this in one sentence in Second Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, and the he there is God the Father, for our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, all who have faith in Jesus, you see, by faith, not by our own obedience, because that would show up our unrighteousness, but by faith in Jesus, we receive, we're given as a gift, his righteousness. And thus we're declared righteous. The righteous shall live by faith. We saw this last Sunday in the faith of this man named Abel, uh, the second son of, of Adam and Eve. And he came, you remember, by faith and was commended by God, was received by God, was accepted by God on the basis of the sacrifice that he made, that he gave to God in worship, by faith. He came not trusting in himself. He came saying, I'm going to take this dead animal to God and I'm going to present it to him because I know that he is holy and I'm not. And I know that the wages of sin is death. That was explained to my father Adam in the garden that if you sin against God, then you die. You're cast from his presence. You're separated from life. And so I know that when I come into his presence, I can't come on the basis of what I bring, on, on my own goodness. I've lost that. So I come bringing this one that he'll accept on my behalf, the, the life of another for my life. And so I come believing, I come trusting that that truth that he revealed to Adam is true for me. And so I come in faith with this sacrifice. His brother Cain, you remember, didn't come in faith. He came bringing the work of his own hands, thinking himself to be accepted by God on the basis of what he produced and what he would think would be wise to bring. And of course he wasn't. And the scripture says that Abel was considered, was counted, was commended as righteous. Why? Not because he had obeyed God perfectly, but because he came by faith, trusting in the death of another to take his death. That was the faith of Abel. Cain didn't come in faith. Today's example is this man named, man named Enoch. Uh, notice how uh, the author of Hebrews puts his life in verse 5. He says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now this is fascinating to me for two reasons. One is because he never died. This man named Enoch never died. Think about that. And secondly, it's fascinating because it says he was commended because he pleased God. Now in that first one, the fascination because he never died. Again, that's fascinating because, well, because he never died. I mean, that's a pretty unique kind of thing. We only know of two people in history recorded in scripture who didn't die physically, Enoch and Elijah. Now, at least with Elijah, we have a great deal of information about him. Uh, but with Enoch, we just have a little bit. Turn back to Genesis and chapter 5. Genesis and chapter 5, in verse 21. 
This is all that we have on this man Enoch, at least from the report of Moses at this time. There was another Enoch uh, in the line of Cain, but this Enoch is from the line of Seth. Genesis 5, verse 21. All we have, these four sentences, about 50 words. Uh, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. He's the father of Methuselah, Methuselah being the oldest man, which gives rise to this riddle that I've been giving to people all week and nobody's gotten, so I'll give you the answer. The riddle is, the oldest man who ever lived died before his father did. Now, it's a little strange to think that the oldest man who ever lived would die before his father did. You'd think his father would outlast him and there would be the oldest man, but he wasn't. But, of course, Methuselah was the oldest man because he died before his father did because his father was Enoch and Enoch never died. So there you go. If any of you are doing Bible trivia, that comes up. Woo-hoo, you get the points. Now, it's amazing in this context uh, because Enoch didn't die. And, and while that's startling just in its face because it's unusual, anything that only happens two times in history is unusual, but it's even more unusual given the context. Because as Moses is laying out uh, this part of Genesis, we're in the midst of some genealogies here. And the genealogies are important. Because if you go all the way back into Genesis in chapter 3, do you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve sinned. And in their sinning, God made a promise. And that promise was that from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush, whose heel would be bruised, who would crush the head of the serpent. Right? That was the, that's the promise. That's the gospel. Everything else in the Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. It all kind of flows out of that. And so uh, you begin to think then, as people are born, is this one the one? You get this, the sense, perhaps, that when Cain was born, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, that they might have thought, he's the one. God made this promise. Therefore, just had a child. Therefore, this must be the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. But he wasn't. He crushed the head of his brother. So it couldn't have been Abel either, though Abel was a person of faith, a man of faith. It wasn't, it wasn't Abel. So then I'm thinking if you're Adam and Eve and they have more children and so forth and so on, which one would it be? Would it be one who would be from the descendants of Cain? And we find that in chapter 4 of Genesis that that group's a warring lot. And so you don't get the impression that it will be that line. And then there's this one born to Adam and Eve named Seth, the appointed one, the substitute for Abel. And if you read through the scripture and get all the way into the Gospels and read the genealogies of Jesus, you find that it's through this line of Seth Seth, that this one does come. Not Seth himself, but one from his line, ultimately this one, Jesus. But what's interesting here is you get into chapter 5 of Genesis and you begin reading the the lineage of Seth. The refrain that happens over and over again is this one. For instance, in verse 5 of Genesis 5, Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Then verse 8, Thus all the days of Seth, Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Verse 14, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Um, Then in verse 17, thus all the days of Mehalel was 895 years and uh, he died. 
And then in verse 20, thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And then verse 24, it just startles you. Because you expected to read, Enoch walked with God and he, was, and he died. But it doesn't say that. It says, Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. The way the author of Hebrews puts it is that he was not found. So you get the impression that somebody was looking for him. He didn't show up for dinner. You know, and it couldn't have been because he was old, because he was only 365. He wasn't even midlife at that point. He was about 30 in our chronology. And so it wasn't that he just forgot to come home and, you know, he's just out wandering around in his late 900s, you know. But he was, where is he? So they began to look for him and he couldn't find him. Somehow God revealed to them, at least by the days of Moses, that what happened to him, that he was taken. That would be like reading in the newspaper of a missing person. You read the reports on Monday. By the mid-next week, you're reading the conclusion. Well, we, we determined that God just took him. Whoa. That's rather amazing. And you begin to think, what's God saying here? Everybody's dying. The wages of sin is death. All right, we get it. And by this point, because of the, the length of years of all of these people and the way the populations grow and the mathematics behind all of that, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. We're not just talking about a few people. We're talking about the earth being really populated. It's really growing and all of this. And everybody's dying one after one. We become very accustomed to dying. Death becomes the rule of the earth. And yet this one doesn't die. And you get a sense that God is saying, Now listen, I just want to remind you of something. But those who walk with me live. And there's something in that that makes me want to walk with God. And it isn't just so that I'll miss physical death. I'm not really banking on that. It only happened a couple of times and I'm getting the pattern down. But there's something about living, walking with God, living. And that's the second thing that's so fascinating about the life of Enoch, he pleased God, the scripture said. He walked with God. He pleased God. Here in Genesis, he walked with God. In Hebrews, it's he pleased God. Same thing, the author of Hebrews just quoting a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was put together in 3rd century B.C. Did you catch all of that? It's called the Septuagint. So many of the New Testament authors would quote that one um, from the Greek um, and you don't need to know this, but I'll tell you anyway. In the Septuagint, in translating from Hebrew to Greek, those authors didn't like what are called anthropomorphisms about God. So they translated them as closely in Greek as they could that would make it not look like God was a human being. So all the words for walked, they sort of took out because they didn't like that for whatever reason. But it's the same sense. To walk with God most certainly is to live in such a way as to please him. Because this idea of walking with God is, 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 a, is a figure of speech, isn't it? To walk with God. God doesn't have legs, you know, as if to walk. But we know what he means. We use the expression, if you're going to talk to talk, you have to walk the walk kind of thing. It's, it's this expression for how you, how you live. You read through the Old Testament, God's always saying to the people, walk according to my statutes and obey my commands. What does he mean? It means live in such a way that you're obeying me. That, that's what it means to walk according to my statutes, to obey my commands. It means to, to live in this way. We get to the New Testament and we read expressions like, we're to walk worthy 
of the Lord. Walk worthy of our calling. It means we're to live in such a way that's consistent with the worth of God, the value of God. During the offering time, I made mention of that, that we're to walk worthy of the Lord, meaning, according to giving, that we should be generous. Because if we're walking with God, then we'll be generous people. We'll be the kind of people who, who give because he's a giver. And he's gonna, when he walks, he gives. And when we walk with him, we give too. It's an amazing thing. And so to walk with God means to please him, to walk in such a way, to live in such a way uh, that shows that you're with God. People can tell that you've been uh, with him. So we need to do that. Um, you get a sense, therefore, that Enoch had this intimacy with God, that he knew God, that in a sense he was in agreement with God as they walked together. The, the prophet Amos uh, has this to say about walking. He says, uh, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? You go, no, no, you can't really walk with someone without a sense of agreement, the two of you together. You've got to agree to walk on the same path. You've got to agree to walk in the same direction. You've got to agree to go to the same destination. And so you get this sense that Enoch, walking with God, knew God, had an intimacy with God, was walking, living on the same path with God, was heading in the same direction with God. And there are some sense in which Enoch's will was submitted to God's will and together they were moving on to such a degree that when you saw Enoch's life you saw God in a very real sense and I read that and there's something there that makes me say I want to walk with God I want to know what this means not just in an academic or an historical sense the context of my, my own life. I want us together to be a people about whom it can be said, those people walk with God. But at the same meeting, I need to check my motives because, uh, you know, when you say walk with God, why exactly? I mean, what's really behind all of that? Why do you really want to walk with God? And, and, and I, I got to be careful that it isn't just to impress other people. Because you, you think about Enoch and you go, but I bet people really were impressed with Enoch. His wisdom and his godliness, they would come to him and sit at his feet for counsel. And they would watch the way that he lived. And, and in, in small groups, people would say, man, did you, you know about Enoch? He's really awesome. You know, this great Christian. He wasn't a Christian then. This great God-fearing man. Uh, uh, but of course, that's ridiculous. Because anybody who walks with God is immediately humbled. So if our desire is to walk with God so we can impress other people, we'll blow it the moment we step on the path with him because we'll be humbled in his presence because first and foremost we will realize we don't know where we're going apart from him. And we can't get there apart from him. But not only that, there's this tendency, I think, for us to think, well, if I walked with God, if I really walked with God, then my life would be, in some sense, easier. 
uh, it'd be easier to walk with him because he's, after all, God. He's powerful and strong and knows where we're going. So if I were really with him, then, then really this life wouldn't affect me much. I could sort of rise above it and, and walk with him uh, and life would be really easy. And I think if you ask Enoch that, he would have said, no, I don't think that's the case. Because the life in which, the times in which Enoch lived were very much like ours, maybe even worse in terms of people being against the ways of God. Um, We're in a march in Genesis chapter 5 to Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 6, the commentary that God gives about people is this, verse 5. He writes, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. continually. And it's not too far into chapter 6 that we find that by this point, there's only one man in all the earth upon whom the favor of God rests, this man Noah. So it wasn't a very popular thing, you get the impression, to walk with God during the days of Enoch. Maybe God was gracious that he only lived 365 years because everyone was so hostile towards him, he spared him an extra 600. And he said, well, I'll just, you know, let's just... Spare you the misery of the difficulty. And and it seemed that as Enoch walked with God, he uh, understood the ungodliness of his own day. Uh, Jude, who gives us one page in the New Testament, uh, writes this about Enoch. It must have been well known, revealed to him, uh, or well known to him through history. Jude, uh, verse 14, there's only one chapter, so it's just Jude, verse 14. It was, about, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, the particular Enoch we're talking about, prophesied, saying, Behold, uh, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so... Enoch would know that during his day, ungodliness reigned. Not very easy to follow God in the midst of ungodliness. And it appears as if Enoch, in some sense, was a prophet, would prophesy that God was going to come and, 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 and bring judgment. Some think his prophecy was really in the name of one of his children, Methuselah, which some have said means that when he dies, the end will come. And so after Methuselah would die, the flood would come. But be that as it may, it wouldn't have been easy for Enoch to walk with God in the midst of a generation like that. It wasn't easy for Abel to walk with God. It cost him his life. It wasn't easy for Noah to walk with God. He was ridiculed by everyone around him for the 120 years it took him. From the time he first got the word from God to the time the flood came. It wasn't easy for the great prophets to walk with God. It wasn't easy for Daniel. And he was Daniel. He wasn't allowed to pray. And then all of a sudden he found that his companions in his prayer meeting were lions. God shut their mouths, but I imagine there was some anxiety there for just a little while while he was taking requests. And one of the lions says, yes, I want you. That would be a little bit unnerving. Scripture says of Jesus that the Spirit led him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. 
not easy to walk with the Spirit. That Jesus had no place to lay his head. That he was led right to the cross. In fact, Jesus was very honest with his disciples. He said, listen, if, you, if you're going to follow me, if, you're gonna be, if I'm going to be your master, they'll hate you the way they hated me. And they'll throw you in prison as well. That's likelihood for you in the context of that generation at least and others since as well. In fact, when Jesus was meeting this rich person one day, he said, all right, if you want to follow me, here's what you have to do. You have to sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. If you want to come on my path, you've got to leave your path. And you've got to leave it completely to come to my path. And so he says, come and follow me. In fact, Jesus put it like this. He says, anyone who wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would lose, whoever would try to save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it or find it. Now, what was Jesus talking about? Essentially this. He said, listen, if you want to follow me, if you want to get on my path, if you want to walk with me, then you have to leave where you're walking. Because that's wrong and you have to leave it entirely. And, and, and what that means is you have to deny yourself that way. You have to deny yourself the way you've been going. You have to say no to all of that. And then you have to come and walk with me and say yes to me. It's, it's the same as if you're taking up your cross and putting all of that to death. It's as if that dies. Because they knew exactly what the image of the cross would be. You know, we like crosses. We make earrings out of them and necklaces and windows and all kinds of things. And that's great. It reminds us of Jesus. But in those days, if somebody saw a cross, it would be like seeing a hangman's noose. It would be like seeing an electric chair. It would be like seeing an, a, a, a lethal injection. It meant death. When they mentioned cross... When they said cross, they knew something was going to die. And so when Jesus says you have to take up your cross, he means put to death all that. It it just isn't going to exist anymore in the context of your life. So deny yourself, take up your cross, and then walk with me. Follow me. That's what he means by all of this. And he says, if you don't do that, if you desire to save that life that you had, you're going to lose it because it's going to lead to destruction. But if you're willing to lose that life, you'll find it as you come and walk with me. And then he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and let yet lose his soul? He said, listen, that, that way, it may lead you to gain everything in this world. On that path, you may be so prosperous in this world that you may gain everything, educationally perhaps, financially perhaps, and otherwise. You could have it all, but at the end of that, it burns. And you have absolutely nothing. So what would that profit? So he says, so deny it, put it to death. Leave that path, leave that life, and find it on this path. Now in all of those images, none of them seem easy. All right? None of them seem easy. You get a sense. When Jesus has put it to death, you get a sense. This, is, this isn't like putting it in the trash. This isn't just like taking it off. This is, there's some sense of violence here in the context of your own life. I don't mean that literally, obviously. Don't go cut parts of your body off. But you get the point. 
you don't get the sense that, that this is a downhill coast. You get the sense that this walk is mountainous and long and has difficulties in it. There's temptations to leave this path. He said, no, 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 you've got to put that to death so it doesn't rear back up because if it does, you'll be tempted to follow after it again. So he says, put it to death and come and follow me. Jesus says, Paul said, to enter the kingdom of God, we must go through many tribulations and many hardships. And so this walk is not an easy walk. Now, it's easy in one sense. It's easy in the sense, for instance, that studying makes school easy, right? If you want school to be easy, study really hard. But that, of course, just begs the question, doesn't it? Because that's the problem. It's the hardness of the study. <laughs> if you want life to be easy, walk with God. Well, that just sort of begs the question, where is he going to take me? Where is this life going to lead? It's going to lead to death of that life, isn't it? And losing that life, being extracted from that life, and walking, and walking with him daily, all the time, minute by minute, that kind of life. And so you get a sense, don't you, of the seriousness of all of this, of walking with God. And so when I say I want to walk with God, I get shivers. When I say I walk with God, this isn't some romanticized life that I'm thinking about living. I mean, it's the only life there is, quite frankly. There isn't any second life because that life leads to death. So this is really the only life. Sort of choices are few. But it isn't sentimentalized. It isn't romanticized. It's real. This life. With God. What would it look like to walk with God? First, I think this. There's most especially a life of faith. Enoch pleased God. His walking with God pleased God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And why would that be true? It's true because faith, because God is worthy of our faith. For instance, in Colossians and chapter 1, in verse uh, 10, we read this. Let me read with verse 9, start the sentence. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Faith is the only thing worthy, if you will, of God. Because faith means, I'm going to abandon me. I'm going to abandon everything else. I'm going to abandon every other way. Because your way is right. Because your way is best. Because you're God. And so faith is walking worthy of the Lord. It's, it's the only thing that, that, that's worthy of Him. There isn't any other way to say, well, God, I'll do this and that'll impress you. And He says, no, 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 no. Impress me, if you will, by trusting me. He's worthy of our complete trust. And so it's a life of faith. It's a life of looking to him to define us. Who am I? It's a life of looking to him to direct us. It's a life of looking to him for our delight, for our joy. To say, okay, make me happy, if you will, by walking, by following 
you. It's a life of submission. We have to understand that when we walk with God, it isn't like we're walking with a peer. Another guy. We're walking with God. He's the Lord. So he leads, you see, (laughs) along this path. He's the Lord. Now, remember when Jesus was calling us to walk with him, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And he also told us that his yoke was easy, his burden was light. And that's true, relatively speaking. But you have to understand that a yoke means that I'm tied to something that directs me, that keeps me, that really enslaves me. I can't get away from it if I'm yoked to it. So if we're going to walk with him, we must understand that, that, that he's the one who leads. We don't lead. So it's a life of submission. It's a life of putting our mission under his, you see, following after his way, his mission, following him. It's a life of submission. Therefore, it's a life of humility, standing in the very presence of God, a life of humility. And of course, it's a life of obedience. And in this life of obedience, as we walk with God, I think a number of things happen. Number one, is that we begin to realize the horror of our own sin. Walking with God. Being on the path with Him. You remember Isaiah? uh, He gets this great vision of God in the temple. Uh, It's huge. He sees God everywhere filling up the temple. The scripture said even the train of His robe filled the temple. It was that big that even His garments were big enough to fill the temple. So it was really huge. And the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is full of your glory and all of that. And the first thing that dawned on Isaiah was that he was a man of unclean lips and he was a, came from a people of unclean lips, meaning compared to God, everything that came out of him was, was evil, was unclean. And he just thought he was just going to perish right there. He says, I'm undone, meaning I'm going to blow up and walk with God. It's, it's that kind of thing to begin to see your own your own sin. You remember Peter, one day he was with Jesus, they were fishing, and, and Peter hadn't caught anything all night, and Peter was a fisherman, he, fisherman, he trusted in his own instincts, he trusted in his own wisdom, his own expertise about fishing and all of that, so he knew there wasn't any fish to be caught, he came in, Jesus said, let's go back out again, and Peter's going, this is crazy, everybody knows you can't get any fish out there, there's no fish out there, I checked everywhere, and so they go out, of course, Jesus said, put down your nets, they catch all these fish. Now, you'd think Peter's response would be, cool, let's do this again tomorrow, you know, this is really exciting, we're going to make a ton of money being fishermen together, you and me, Jesus, but he says, get away from me, because I'm a sinful man, he gets in the boat with Jesus, and he reflects upon himself from that holiness to himself, and as we walk with God, in this humility that happens, We'll begin to see our own sin. But as we walk with God, we'll be increasingly convinced of the righteousness of Christ. Because you see, in walking with Him, He'll say, yes, you see this, but now we're walking and the direction we're headed, what we're looking at is the glory of my Son. And you'll see His righteousness and His goodness And that's to cover you. And you'll see his forgiveness. That's to cleanse you. 
So let's continue to walk upon this path. And increasingly, you see, what we'll see then is the hatred and the anger that fills us will be given over to love and kindness and forgiveness. We find when we walked with him is that the discontentedness that we have begins to get swallowed up in the bigness of God and to understand his sovereignty and his greatness and his goodness in the context of our lives. As we, as we walk with him, we continue to see that the lies that once uh, made us feel secure now make us feel very uncomfortable. And the only security that we have, the only comfort that we have, is walking in and telling the truth. We realized before that the sexual immorality that seemed to, to bring us comfort and, and excitement and all of that now doesn't. And the only thing that makes sense, the thing that drives us now is sexual purity and all of that. We see the impatience that once characterized our lives gives way now to seeing what was behind all of that, me trying to control my circumstances and me trying to be God and, and, and now I can't and I realize, no, I'm better off with him being God. I can trust him and be patient as we walk step after step after step along the way. What happens, you see, as we continue to walk with God is there's a growth in him. We become to know him better. We become to talk to him more. And so we study the scripture and we begin to love his statutes. We begin to love his law, as the psalmist said. And we begin to pour out our hearts to God. Teach me your ways. Enable me to walk with you. And we find this maturity starting to happen. We, we see it in our contentedness. Even though everything might be difficult around us, there's something in us, there's this, this stay within us that's saying, no, be still. You're walking with God. Be still. Know that He's God. This one you're following, this one you're walking with, He's God. He will be exalted among the nations. And so as you're walking along this path with Him, you have this sense of contentedness. He's the sovereign one. He's controlling all of this. That he's powerful enough to get to the, to the end. And he's good enough that the end is a good end. And he's loving enough that he'll make sure you get there. Trust him. This maturity grows as well. Because it brings to us uh, a great sense of gratefulness in this. Because as we're walking along the path we come to really understand what it is that we deserve and to really understand what he gives us. And so life becomes a life of thankfulness and it becomes a life of joy because we realize that we're pleasing God. Amazingly so. One 19th century uh, devotional writer and by the name of Matthew Henry puts writing, uh, walking with God this way. He says, To walk with God is to set God always before us and to act as those who are always under his eye. So, all right, the way that you walk with God is a consciousness. You go, I'm walking with God. 
God is here present with me and I am under his eye. Not just his eye that's watching what I do to make sure I don't mess up, but his eye watching out for me. His eye keeping me on the path. His eye carefully upon me. And if his eye is on the sparrow, right? A little dinky bird. That's not in the song. And you know he's really watching you and after you. He goes on to say this. It's a, it is to live a life of communion with God in all that he ordains and in all of his providences. So you're, you're with God in all of these things so that you know that no matter how difficult some things are, that he's still the sovereign one. And you don't understand that, but you know that he does. And you don't know the purpose, but you know that he has one. And you know that you're still walking with him. He goes on to say this. To walk with God is to make God's word our rule and his glory our end in all of our actions. Now the thing that's on your mind is, okay, I'm going to do it his way and I'm going to do it for his glory. So the question always is, what will please him? What will glorify him? What will show him to be great in the midst of this circumstance and this situation? To walk with God is to make it our constant care and endeavor in everything to please Him and nothing to offend Him. To walk with God is to comply with His will, to concur with His designs, and to be workers together with Him. It's to be followers of Him as dear children. There's something about that that resonates deep in my soul. It says, I really want to walk with God. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me and for us that you would enable us to deny all the old paths upon which we've walked in our own wisdom and strength. We would put all of that to death so that we could walk with you. Draw us to yourself in the richest and deepest sense of that. And grant to us the grace to live with you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand for the benediction, please, as you do. I remind you of our Sunday school classes happening in about 15 minutes, so please... Attend. The response to our benediction is simply this I desire to walk with God. Amen. Remember what that means. To say amen is to put your exclamation mark on it, to say yes, I do. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace. We brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, I desire to walk with God. Amen.